Welcome to this week's message from Mountain Park Church. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we hope that as you listen to today's message, you feel challenged and inspired to give God more room to work in your life this week. So we are uh, in this little series, I don't know how long we'll be in it, um, called Atmosphere. And uh, I forgot to even, I forget so many things every week, but um, so we always have next week to come back to some of them. Um, But I forgot to even define that for you. When we talk about atmosphere, we're going to talk about it on a couple of different levels, but let's just throw up that definition of that. A surrounding or pervading mood, environment or influence. So when we talk about atmosphere, we're not talking about the Earth's atmosphere and all of those things, although there's some interesting correlations between the two. But we're talking about an environment that surrounds and pervades, that influences and that transforms moods even, that transforms attitudes, that transforms dispositions and hearts. And last week, um, we were talking about the power of prayer and fasting together. And again, because I forget things every week, there were a couple things that I forgot to mention. And, and if you want to listen to last week's message, you can go online and do that or um, subscribe to our YouTube, um, our, our podcast on iTunes, sorry. But I just want to clarify a couple of things before we move forward, because these two um, components, fasting and prayer... And what we're going to talk about as worship actually are, are things that go together in our life. And last week as we talked about fasting, there's a couple of things I forgot to mention. One, that in the New Testament, Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, he's giving them instructions on how to fast. And he actually says, when you do fast, Matthew 6, 16, fasting for Jesus was not a question of if you do it. It's when you do it. It's not an imperative to salvation or our life, but he's saying when you do fast, here's what you're to do. And in the nation of Israel at that time, fasting uh, was, was done on two different levels. One was as a corporate response, and the other was personal. And so Jesus, in Matthew 6, 16, is giving his disciples instructions on how to personally fast. And so fasting for us is not just a matter of if we do it. I want to encourage you. It's a discipline that Jesus himself validated and said, when you do it. And the principles of fasting are found throughout the whole Bible. And you can go back and listen to last week. We won't cover that ground again. But another really interesting story related to that. There's a story, um, it's called the Transfiguration, and it's where Jesus takes a few disciples, and they go up onto this mountain, and before their eyes, he's transformed into his glorious state, and he's met by Elijah and Moses, and they have this conversation. He comes back down from the mountain, and this experience, and he's met by a group of people, And they're really intent on seeing him because some of his other disciples who were down the mountain, not experiencing what some of them saw, were trying to pray for this young boy who was sick. And they were praying and they were trying to to cast out these evil spirits from this boy, but they couldn't. 
And so they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, you've got to help us. We're doing the best we can here, but nothing's happening. Our prayer isn't working. And Jesus says to them, in a moment of, of tenderness and teaching, he says, guys, you're missing one part of the equation. In this specific case, this kind of ministry can only happen through prayer and fasting. And Jesus, what's really interesting is, is there's a, a contrast there. Because just previous to that, Jesus um, his disciples were confronted by John the Baptist's disciples. And John the Baptist's disciples practiced fasting. And they were upset that Jesus and his disciples, and specifically his disciples, Jesus fasted. But they were upset that his disciples were fasting. And Jesus said, they're not going to fast while I'm with them. But in this moment of teaching, when Jesus says, that kind can only come out through prayer and fasting, what he's saying is, in the future... After I'm gone, this is a principle that you need to understand. This is another tool in your belt, so to speak. That you're not fasting right now as my disciples with me here. But when I'm gone, this is going to be a tool that you can use for powerful supernatural effectiveness. And so Jesus leaves them this principle of prayer and fasting together. And we see it all through the Old Testament and New Testament. Over the last couple of weeks, and even the last, since the fall, God has been restirring in me, um, just in my own spirit, a, a hunger and a desire to fast more. I fasted for 40 days a few times, and 21 days a few times, and whatever. But I had this idea last week, and as a staff, we talked about it, in we're going to start something new at Mountain Park um, starting next month. Once a month, I think on a Monday night, right? Once a month on a Monday night, we're going to gather together to pray, just as a church. Just We're going to gather together to pray and ask God to just invade our space and lead us. I have no idea, really, where God is leading us. I, I would be lying if I told you I had a, a perfect picture. I don't. But we're going to pray and ask God every month where to go. As a team, we decided we're going to add fasting to that equation. And so what I want to challenge you with, we'll let you know on the exact days, but what I want to challenge you with is we're going to practice this principle of yielding and surrendering ourselves to God, and we're going to fast and pray on that same day once a month as a church corporately. And we're going to do that for the purpose of seeking the presence and the plans and the purposes of God. That's it. We're not doing it because there's some religious mandate to do it. We're not doing it because we're forced to and told to. We're going to do it because I want to see. I don't want to just hear other stories from other places of God working powerfully. I want to see the manifest presence of God demonstrated in our midst. And I want you and I to be eyewitnesses to the power of God at work in us and through us. And I don't know a better way to just start doing that than by prayer and fasting. So we're going to start to do that. Today as we talk about atmosphere, we're going to move on to another powerful principle that's outlined in the Bible, and that's worship. 
Worship is an essential component to the Christian life that cannot be sidestepped. We're going to uncover today, hopefully, the spiritual significance of worship and how God uses worship in our lives in a spiritual warfare context. What actually worship does in the unseen realm around us when we do it. And so I'm going to get you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament. We're going to start there. We're going to work our way right through the New Testament to the book of Joshua. First of all, before we even get there, um, because I'll forget it and then we'll have to cover it next week and we don't want to do that. So just to lay a, a bit of a framework, in the Old Testament, there's seven Hebrew words for worship. And they all have similarities, and they all have distinct nuanced differences. Today, um, I'm just going to show you the definition for the most used Hebrew word, which is halal, which is not the blessed meat that we see um, on storefronts all over the place. Halal means most common Hebrew word for praise appears 165 times in the Old Testament. There's obviously New Testament Greek words for that too. The word means to praise, celebrate, glory, sing praises, or boast about. And I want you to key into this last part. It carries the sense of shouting and jubilation. If we're going to talk about worship and praise, the first thing that you, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that on the back of those connect cards. The first thing we need to understand is one, that worship is a verb, and two, worship is an active declaration of who God is and what he's done. It's an active declaration of his character and his nature. And oftentimes in scripture, when you actually get down to the nitty gritty detail of it, it's not quiet and subdued. It's not introspective. It is actually a forceful and loud declaration of the plans and purposes and character and nature of God. So often I feel like, even in my own life, I go through these seasons where, where I, I feel, for whatever reason, I feel too timid or, or understated to, to approach God boldly and loudly. But the Bible actually commands our praise in a bold and aggressive way. If, if they had them in the Old Testament times or even in the New Testament times, if they had sound systems and speakers and all of those things, literally what the Bible is saying is crank it to 10 and let her go. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. Did you know this? Okay. That the devil, he cannot read your thoughts. Only God knows the mind and the heart of man. The devil doesn't know your thoughts before you speak them out loud. But he can hear us audibly. And so that's even when, when we pray in our services and when I pray before and we're, we're taking authority over the enemy, we do it with our voice so that we're speaking to and commanding things in the unseen realm. And part of the reason that the Bible is so explicit about our worship being an audible declaration out of our voice is that we're speaking to the unseen world and declaring the truth and honor and glory and majesty of God. 
truths that both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness know full well. And when we worship God, we're placing ourselves in alignment with his kingdom and declaring his sovereignty and his purposes and his plans over our life. Worship is an essential ingredient to our spiritual life. And as a church, part of the culture that we're building is not a culture where we come and we sing a few token songs and we just move on, but a culture where as best we can every single week, we approach Jesus and give him all of our strength and might, all of our energy, all of our worship, as best we can every week. We create an environment of adoration and praise to him, not so that we can just hear our own voice or check off on the box this compulsory thing, list of things to do, but so that we can declare things into the unseen world. And when we gather together to sing songs like we did today, we're actually making a declaration, not only here in this place, but in the heavenly realm of whose we are, of who we trust and of what authority we walk in. Let's just give some biblical context. Book of Joshua. Chapter six is where we're gonna start. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. And we can even, well, the lights are probably up as much as they are. They're half burnt out in here right now anyway. So, Um, but... It says in, uh, sorry, we're going to start in in chapter 5, verse 13. Okay, so this is Joshua is on the scene. And let me just set the context. So Israel, oh, there's Kleenex here. My nose is running so badly the other night. And I just, it's probably gross watching me wipe it with my thumb all the time, right? (laughs) So... Yeah, I, just, I thought about that the other night on the first revival night when I was speaking, and I was just like a six-year-old, just wiping my sniffles the whole night. Just how gross that probably looks for everyone else. It's, it was a mandatory function of that moment. But um, So the context is Moses is gone, and now Joshua's leading, and they're about to enter the promised land. They're about to get to the place as a nation that God had promised he would bring them. They're about to get there, and they're about to cross the Jordan, and they're about to take uh, and engage in their first battle. And so the scene is set. The whole nation is actually encamped in the plains of Jericho. They're, They're close to the city, but they're not around the city. The whole nation of Israel is encamped there, and they're celebrating, and they're partying, and Joshua goes out by himself. And Joshua goes out to do a couple of things. We're going to catch it here in chapter 5, 13. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. I'm going to stop there for just a second. So the whole nation is celebrating. The whole nation is, uh, is busy. And Joshua, as the leader of that nation, decides that he needs to go size up the obstacle that they're about to encounter. And so he goes off by himself 
to take a look and to scout out, God, what is, what is laying in front of us here? What are we about to encounter? And when he gets to the city of Jericho, what he sees is a city with two fortified walls around it. The outside wall being probably around six feet thick and four to five stories high. And then an inner wall behind that, about 12 feet thick and six to seven stories high. And so here's this leader of this small band of misfits that the Bible says are the least of all of the nations around them. And he goes walking by himself to size up the encounter they're about to have. He goes to size up the enemy and he's faced with these ginormous walls. But instead of actually just staring at the walls and trying to understand how they would navigate them or climb them, the Bible says that he looked up. In the process of sussing out the problem, he takes his eye off the wall and puts it on heaven, on Jesus. And in that moment when he takes his eye off the obstacle in front of them, he's met with this angel who's standing there with a sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? And I love this. This is so important. Verse 14, neither one, he replied. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I was reading a preacher kind of talking about this story, and he said, in a sense, what this angel is saying is, look, you guys have your armies and you have your battles, but I'm fighting on a totally different plane. I'm not actually for you or against you. I'm not for them or against them. I'm actually for the purposes and the plans of the heart of God. And what he wants, what he desires, is what I do and what I enact and bring to fruition. And so often we get stuck saying, God, what's going on? What's wrong in my life? I don't understand it. I want this to happen, and I see this happening, and, I, and I'm crying out for this. And we're, God, why won't you come to my aid? Why aren't you on my side? And in a sense, God is saying, I'm not for you or against you, but I'm for my plans and my purposes. I'm for something far beyond what you understand. The question is, are you looking at me to find the answer? And so what happens when he says that? At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I'm at your command, Joshua said. What do you need your servant to do? So just a couple interesting things here. Every time there was an angelic encounter with people on earth, and God's angels, they would have the same response. They would fall to the ground and worship. Every time they did, the angel would say, get up, don't worship me, worship God. In this case, he doesn't say that. The angel that's standing in front of him as a mighty, powerful warrior doesn't instruct Joshua to get up. The question is why? And the answer is because this is literally pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus, God's son, before he even comes to earth, who rips apart 
the veil of heaven and comes down to earth in his powerful name and declares to Joshua what to do. Joshua is literally standing face to face with this pre-incarnate God-man named Jesus. And what happens? It says that he falls to the ground and he worships. And then this angel gives them their battle plan. A lot of us know this whole story, so we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to jump to chapter 6, verse 16. Because the battle plan that the angel gives him is not one that would be militarily wise. And that was just to walk around and sing for seven days. And then on the seventh day, do it seven times. And from a strategic point of view, that's not a display of strength and power. That's a display of utter weakness. But yet, watch what happens. Verse 16 of chapter 6. The seventh time around, so this is on the seventh day, as the priest sounded the long blast on the horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Jericho and everything must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. That word shout there carries two meanings at the same time. Literally, it's shout, and that carries a military connotation of a command and an order, but also that word means worship. That it was actually not just to shout randomness, but it was literally to shout at the top of their lungs in praise and adoration and worship to God. And so as they play their instruments, they join with their voices and declare the plans and purposes and character and nature of God. And what happens? They don't pick up their swords and storm the walls. The walls come down around them. That as they engage in worship, God actually goes ahead of them. In the spiritual realm, God goes before them as they worship and praise him, as they shout loudly. God changes something in the atmosphere spiritually that breaks down the walls and the barriers to their forward movement. What I'm wondering about your life and my life is when was the last time when we were faced with a decision or an obstacle or we found that we were pressed in on every side struggling? When was the last time we stopped trying to plan and strategize? When was the last time we stopped trying to to figure out how to overcome something and actually just began to declare the worth and glory of God over that situation? When was the last time you were faced with that obstacle or that incident or anything like that? And instead of trying to overcome it with your own intellect and your own strength and your own might, instead of that, you actually declare the purposes and the plans and the glory of God over it and wait for God to move in the supernatural realm before you walk, before you move forward. This is what happened with Israel. Let's move forward. This is one of the most famous ones, and we're not going to cover this. In the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 
Israel, again, is in another season where they hear that all of these nations around them have, are ganging up and are ready to basically drive them off the face of the earth. And the king Jehoshaphat, he does three things. One, he calls them to pray. Two, he calls them to fast. And three, he calls them to worship. And this is what happens. In the face of their enemy and unsurmounting odds, Second Chronicles 20, 21. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they said. Give thanks to the Lord as love endures forever. What they didn't say is, God, take care of these guys. God, kill them. God, do this. God, do that. God, do this. No, what they did is they declared the goodness of God. They declared his faithfulness. God, we've seen you move in the past. We've seen you part the Red Sea. We saw the walls come down in Jericho. God, we've seen you act on our behalf. So we're going to appeal to your goodness and your faithfulness. God, we're going to declare that over the battle we're about to face. And what happens? At that very moment, they began to sing Okay, watch. There's a correlation here between what's happening on earth and what's happening in the supernatural realm in heaven. At the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused, okay, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting amongst themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. After they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah, this is a key word too. Judah was one of the tribes of Israel. And Judah means praise. And Judah was the first tribe always out in battle. Judah always led in battle because it was worship and praise. Judah was the closest tribe that was camped near the entrance of the meeting tent of God in the Old Testament. They were the closest to the gateway of relationship and intimacy and the voice of God. And so this tribe goes first. When they got there, they, at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. Without one sword drawn. Their battle plan was worship. Their battle plan was a corporate declaration of the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the midst of their struggle. Let's go one further. Isaiah chapter 30, a few chapters to the right of that. I love this. Chapter 30, verse 29. But the people of God will sing a song of joy, like the songs at the holy festivals. You will be filled with joy as when a flutist leads a group of pilgrims. I've never experienced that. I'm trying to relate here, but that's a struggle for me. For some reason, I just picture like Frodo and Bilbo Baggins and like the hobbits. I don't know why. Anyway, I digress. Um, if you play the flute, I'm sorry. I wasn't meaning to offend you. Okay, after the Lord. Um, no, I lost my place. That'll teach me. All right. And the Lord will make his majestic voice heard. He will display strength of his mighty arm. 
It will descend and devouring flames with cloud bursts and thunderstorms and huge hailstorms. Verse 31, at the Lord's command, the Assyrians, this is a prophetic word, the Assyrians will be shattered. He will strike them down with his royal scepter. And as the Lord strikes them with his rod of punishment, his people will celebrate with tambourines and harps. Lifting his mighty arm, he will fight the Assyrians. In the moment of worship and celebration, the Bible is giving us this picture of God taking his scepter and smashing down the enemy. Of God going before them and smashing the obstacles and the opposition in front of them. This is how we change the atmosphere when it comes to worship. This is why worship for us is not just compulsory. It's us digging in intentionally into the presence of God in the supernatural realm to say, God, I need you. I want you to do something for me that I can't do for myself. And the gateway to that is praise and adoration. You know, a lot of us, say, well, I worship in different ways. I worship through, you know, reading the Bible and whatnot. And I, I want to respectfully say to you, those are good things, but that's not worship. There's only one way, and that's with our voice declaring the praise and honor and glory of God. It's all through Scripture. Meditating on God's Word is important and good, but meditating and reading your Bible is not the same as declaring with your voice the glory and power of God over your life. You cannot mix the two up. They're both important, but nothing in your life will have the same power and effect over your life and circumstances as a declaration of God's worth and glory and power like worship. Let's just go to our last text. New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 16. We're met here with two gentlemen named Paul and Silas. And I want to pick this up in verse 6, just for context. Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them. I, I, if you have your Bible, just circle that word. Prevented them from preaching. Why in the world would God do that? We'll find out. Preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a, a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. I'm going to pick it up further down in verse 16. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her master's. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. 
This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master, her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city was in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials, they are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, around midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining about their situation and grieving and groveling in frustration to God, muttering under their breath how frustrating it was and how disappointed they were that God didn't come through with them. No. That's my, ver- sorry, that's, that's the Andrew Platt authorized version right there. Sadly, but true sometimes. They were praying and singing hymns to God. Notice this. And the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted him, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, What must I do to be saved? This is a powerful example of what happens in the supernatural realm when instead of us groveling and angry and frustrated at our circumstances around us, Make the deliberate choice to declare the worth and praise and honor of God. What's really interesting is that earlier section where it says that the Holy Spirit actually blocked them from going to preach. I I wonder if part of that is in there. Because God knew, and only he knows, God knew that he had a plan for Asia that involved another disciple named Peter. And that if, if they would have kept pressing on with what they wanted and what they felt was right and felt was good, if, if they would have kept pressing on to do what they wanted to do for their own reasons and for their own pride and for their own self-gratification, if they would have kept pressing on, they would have turned over and upset the plans and purposes of God. But so often we find ourselves in these scenarios where there's a fork in the road and we decide, God, this is what I want for my life. Isn't it good? Isn't it right? God, this is what I want to see happen. This is how I want you to use me. 
And we get involved not in trusting God and trusting what he's done in the past, but in telling God how to do what only he can do in our life. And we say, God, I want to be able to go there. And like little kids so often, we say, I I should be able to do that, God. Why don't you want me to be happy? Why don't you want me to feel fulfilled? And the Holy Spirit blocks them in their life because he knows he's got a bigger plan and purpose for them. And I think part of that plan was the salvation of this jailer. And it wasn't the salvation of this jailer because Paul, in eloquent words, defended the gospel precisely. It was because these two guys who were beaten near to death, thrown in a dungeon in stocks, refused to let their circumstances define their worship. And yet we have the audacity in our life to come here every Sunday or go home every Sunday or drive in our cars every Sunday and say, God, I'm not singing to you today. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of my life. I'm sick of what I see around me. I'm not going to open my mouth to praise you when I don't even know if you're fighting for me or against me. We have the audacity in our lives to challenge the plans and purposes of God. And the foolishness to forget the necessity of worship and declaring his praise over our lives. Worship team, you guys can come back up. And I'm not preaching this to you. I'm preaching this to me. Because many of you know, and I've said this before and I'm not going to go into it, but like Pastor Herm said today, it's been almost a one year next week that at the end of my rope, I decided, God, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to trust you to do something that I don't want to do in a place I don't want to be and in a scenario that I want to run away from. And I have not been beat to an inch of my life and I've never been enchained in a dungeon. But I've had that crossroads over and over and over again this year of going, God, I don't like where I am. I don't like what I see you trying to do in me. I'm fighting it inside my heart. I don't know how I'll ever be happy doing this. I don't know how you're going to work this out for good. I can't see it. But God has been challenging me, especially in these last few months. Andrew, stop worrying about what you want. Stop worrying about what you see and start declaring my plans and purposes. Start reflecting on and acknowledging my goodness. And the Bible over and over again gives us this picture of this principle that we when we actually make it our heart's desire to declare loudly and with strength over our life the goodness and the glory of God that he moves ahead of us and changes the atmosphere around us that he brings freedom and deliverance and victory and so if you're in a spot in your life right now 
where you, you're not sure that you can worship God for what he's doing, then worship God for what he's done. And if you're not sure that you can worship him for what he's done, then worship him for who he is. And if you don't even know that, then worship him for what you want him to do in your life. Declare in advance the glory and praise and honor of God. There's never a time in our life when we cannot worship God for something. And maybe it's not all of those things at once. But God is challenging you to bring to mind right now the, the stories and the events and the situations where he's been so faithful. And you can say, God, you are faithful. You are good. And he's challenging you in your circumstance to take your eyes off the wall, to take your eyes off the dungeon and the chains and to say, God, I don't know what comes next but you're still worthy, you're still glorious, you're still robed with majesty and with strength. And just because of that, I'll declare your praise. Let's stand together. I believe that, I believe that God is calling us to cultivate a culture of worship. Not a style, not a set of songs that we pull from, but a culture of adoration and praise. Adoration and praise in our homes and over our families. Adoration and praise in the morning when we're driving to work adoration and praise for all of the good things that God has done for us, all of the things that, that God is, and all of the things we want from Him. And I believe that, that if we pursue this, this culture and this DNA of worship, that He's going to show up and He's going to reveal more of His heart to us. And what's going to happen is he's going to change the atmosphere around us and we're going to find ourselves in situations where God is fighting for us and ahead of us. When we need to stop striving and trying to be better and do good and fix things. And we need to stop tinkering and just say, God, I'm going to declare you and I ask that you move ahead of me. So he's inviting you to stop working at it start reflecting on him to stop trying to fix your life and start declaring his goodness over it over the dysfunction and over the brokenness and over the hurt and depression and anger and pride and lust and whatever self-righteousness you go through the list that's why we sing it's why we practice what we do corporately so when we sing, Jesus, at the mention of your name, it's not just a clever lyric and a hook. It's actually truth. It's rooted in who God is and what he's done. When we sing, we fall down. It's not just some creative gimmick. Worship requires a posture of humility. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. 
We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately. 